If you have a position of power, you've got to use it. You're not really there to be a decorative element. You're really there to try to explain what you're doing, why you're doing it to the best of your ability, and how is that going to change anything? From Politico, this is Women Rule, where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent and co-author of the Politico Playbook. That's Natalia Kahnem, the executive director of the United Nations Population Fund. She joined us for a special bonus episode of Women Rule in honor of International Women's Day. Dr. Kahnem is one of the world's foremost experts on public health, and her job is to help protect and promote access to sexual and reproductive health, especially for girls and women throughout the entire world. It's a daunting task, but one where the world has made major improvements since the days she started out in the field. As a young pediatrician and health researcher, I was very baby-focused, as was the field. Eventually, it dawns on you that that baby does not appear from the sky. We talked about Natalia's journey from childhood in Panama to some of America's most prestigious schools, to now leading one of the largest health organizations in the world. And as gender equality takes center stage for International Women's Day, Conum said it's important to realize the progress we've made and also the work that remains. Sexual and reproductive health is a big part of human identity. Who am I? These are questions that young people the world over struggle with, and they deserve our support, and they deserve the ability to have a dialogue about this that is not lacquered with a lot of ideology and uh, recrimination. And now, here's my conversation with Natalia Conum. Natalia, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I want to start by asking you to walk through the UN Population Fund and the work you do, because there's a whole lot of it, uh, which people may not know about. I am representing a UN Population Fund known as UNFPA, which is the United Nations Sexual and Reproductive Health Agency. So that means that we look after women, we look after adolescents, boys and girls, And really, the cycle of sexual and reproductive health is something that touches every single family. In the United Nations, of course, we serve the developing world primarily. So my focus is even more on women who have great need. They're just as smart and as interested in progress as anyone else, but they really don't have opportunities. UNFPA is devoted to the idea that every pregnancy should be an intended one, that every childbirth should be safe, and certainly that every young person's potential be fulfilled. You've been head of UNFPA since 2017, but you've certainly been working in public health for much longer than that. I'm curious how you think the conversation around reproductive health, bodily autonomy, how has that changed since you began in the field, or has it? You know, that is such a great question. We've made huge progress, but we have also faced a season of pushback, of people almost resenting the fact that women are going to take control of their own body and make no mistake about it. You know, they are. As a young pediatrician and health researcher, I was very baby-focused, as was the field. Eventually, it dawns on you that that baby does not appear from the sky, (laughs) that there is a lineage that really has an effect on the health. And I'm not even just talking about nutrition. Are we really prepared to support a woman in her decision 
as to how she is going to bring life to fruition or how she is going to control fertility, which can help her to keep her job, which can help her to decide when it's safe for her and her body to go through the rather prolonged process of a healthy, hopefully, pregnancy. So I've seen a lot of progress, but I've also seen cause to worry. Why is it so slow? What is there about an agenda of putting women and girls at the center that doesn't come true literally overnight? You know, even today when we talk about this topic, it's, it's kind of positioned as a woman's issue. But so much of this is also really a men's issue. Why do you think the conversation hasn't shifted there? Do you think it needs to shift in that direction? What I find is that there are women of courage who are calling the question everywhere. And you're right. This is a societal issue. In this era, it's not even a binary male-female issue. It's an issue for everyone to pay attention to. Sexual and reproductive health is central. Sexual and reproductive health is a lot of, uh, is a big part of human identity. Who am I? Mm. These are questions that young people the world over struggle with. And they deserve our support. And they deserve the ability to have a dialogue about this that is not lacquered with a lot of ideology and uh, recrimination. You know where this is most important? During times of crisis. UNFPA has distinguished ourselves by facilitating dialogue. We call them in safe spaces, even in the middle of a refugee camp. And, you know, when I go into these settings... It's really important for me to sit in that circle on the ground or, you know, wherever we are. It gives that chance for dialogue to talk about what most matters to people. And I just want to tell you that sexual and reproductive health is actually one of the top priorities of a woman who is in crisis. So we're there for her. We are there to provide the dignity kits, that's what we call them, to make sure that she's respected even, e even at the scariest of times. I came across a speech you gave in December at the UN. You said that globally there's, quote, a rising regressive tide that threatens to tear away the rights that women and girls have over their bodies, their choices, and their lives, and that progress seems to be slowing all over the world. Why do you think that's happening now? The fact is, women have coalesced, women have marched, women have spoken out. Movements like the Me Too movement have made it clear that we want full equality, not just embroidering around the edges, if you will. And I think, in a way, you know, your success can lead to the attraction of counterpoint voices, working in some of the countries where we do. The shame and stigma attached to being pregnant out of wedlock is still there. So let's admit that, right? The fact is, we very often deny factual information to young people. And that girl is made more vulnerable because she literally does not know. She doesn't know anything about the so-called facts of life, right? So how tragic then, if she falls pregnant, she's blamed She's still forced to drop out of school. The cycle of poverty for her and her family is definitely going to continue. And in many instances, the judgments, the harshest judgments, are not from a place of compassion. They're not from a place of trying to understand where she is. It's actually a blaming of the victim. The ability of society as a whole 
to address these problems. This is what UNFPA wants to change. And in particular, we want to empower that girl to understand that you are the owner of your body. You can scream if you feel threatened, that you should not be led down the garden path through ignorance. So we work on delicate matters. We have to be extremely respectful. We've got to work in the local context. Mm -hmm. We're not trying to offend anyone. We're trying to protect that daughter, that sister, really that mom, so that she will be able to survive and thrive and take her place in, in, in society. You mentioned the Me Too movement, and there's a lot happening in the industrialized world. I wonder how that impacts your approach to work in poorer countries. The fact is, everywhere in the world, and you know, as you're alluding to, Sexual and gender-based violence is wrong. Sexual and gender-based violence is hidden. And women and girls everywhere have a concern for their family's reputation, for their own reputation, and this toxic mixture of not being able to speak the truth about what's happening to you not only disturbs their physical health, the consequences in terms of your self-respect that can be devastating across a lifetime. So we can see that people who may be wealthy, they may be famous, they may be uh, lauded in their uh, you know, profession or their sphere, have been derailed by some of these circumstances. How much more vulnerable now when there's little you in some village somewhere and you are being subjected to this type of attack on your human rights? In the medical frame, we do a lot with uh, survivors of rape. This is a crime of war that is increasing, very disturbing. And uh, I've always been struck by one lady who said very clearly, doctor, it's great that you're here. Thank you for the social work support that UNFPA provides. Thank you for healing us when we've been wounded through these, these, these crimes. She was actually talking about rape and, and conflict. This was in a Rohingya camp. But she said, it's the wound that you don't see. That's the one that cuts the deepest. And to me, what she was saying is that the justice system is not working for us. We really don't have an avenue to bring these perpetrators to account. So there's a lot for society to sit down and look at. I want to take a step back. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? What was your family like? Well, I am Panamanian by birth. And... My family was a mix of people who were, for our circumstances, we were not a wealthy family, um, relatively well-educated, along with relatives who did not have the opportunity for schooling. So I was among the first of my generation to actually go to college when I immigrated to the United States. When, what year was that? That was in 19... 64. Okay. And I lived in Middletown, New York, which is a beautiful, at the time, dairy community. Very so different than Panama, I assume. Yes, it was, and it was very cold. <laughs> um, I was also, I think, very fortunate because the teachers that I had throughout really my entire lifetime took an interest in shaping my understanding that you can learn whatever you want on your own. This is something I try to transmit to young people as well that your schooling gives a direction, but when you discover that you have a passion and an interest for a subject, that you can go beyond. So I feel extremely privileged that 
I was able to be a scholarship student at places like Harvard and Columbia and the University of Washington in Seattle, Washington, where I really immersed myself at the time as a young uh, medical student in looking at what at the time they called tropical medicine. Now mm -hmm. we would probably call it international health. But I really got a deep understanding that health is not just the physical body. I think as a young person, I had irrepressible curiosity. I remember people trying to shush me. I think that um, it's helped me to be a good spokesperson for people who aren't voiceless. It's just that we're not listening to you. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think everybody deserves a chance to at least be heard. Okay, we're not all going to agree about everything, but every woman, every girl deserves for her voice to be heard. Given being an immigrant, go going to these kind of institutions that at that time in particular, probably largely white, we deal a lot on this podcast with how do you kind of be the first? And w were there any techniques or things that worked for you kind of breaking through and, you know, I'm sure in, in dealing with racism, dealing with all kinds of things at that time? Well, you know, what I find to be very true in every circumstance is that people are never a solid block. So when we're working in remote communities, there can be stereotypes about this is what this village is like. This is what these kind of people are like, et cetera, et cetera. In my experience um, growing up and certainly till today, that's never true. Mm. So for me, having to figure out like, how do you fit in? Mm -hmm. This is something that every young person has to do really involved being open to uh, learning about new types of everything from culture and food and uh, the approach to questioning. What's great about Americans is very direct. What's your name? <laughs> What's your job? Where do you come from? You know, in other places, that doesn't work. That's not the approach. And you quickly learn that there are a variety of ways that you can really get to the heart of the matter, that people are actually longing to tell what is happening with them. But you've got to open that space. So ultimately, I found that there are also times when you can't afford to sit back and pretend that everything is hunky-dory. And um, I came up in an era, you know, in the 60s and 70s, when civil rights was very much the currency of the day. The women's movement was reshaping itself. I was present in Cairo and in Beijing 25 years ago when women's rights are human rights. This mm -hmm. is something that Secretary Hillary Clinton at the time said. And these galvanized us to understand that if you have a position of power, you've got to use it. You're not really there to be a decorative element. You're really there to try to explain what you're doing, why you're doing it to the best of your ability, and how is that going to change anything? The issues you work on touch on some pretty dark topics, war, violence, mutilation, rape, and, and so on, so many others. You seem like you have a pretty optimistic spirit, realistic, but how do you keep that and not get just kind of depressed by what's happening around the world? To be truthful, what's happening around the world is tragic. It's depressing. It's a fragile circumstance that we're living under. As someone who aspires to heal, it's really important to be able to show the face of hope to the person who you're trying to help. You're not really supposed to 
get down and wallow in their sorrow with them. Although I have to say that, you know, there are times when you go home and you just have to cry because of what you've witnessed, because of what you've seen, and also because of what appears to be callous disregard in terms of the system that's supposed to help. So right now, the United Nations making a big push on universal health coverage. This defends human life and dignity at a time when we really need that. For me, I keep my optimism because I'm somebody who's been fortunate to see change. In the last 25 years, we've reviewed statistics that show that death in childbirth has dropped dramatically by almost half, by 40%. And I have such a fantastic staff in 150 countries around the world. They're motivated to make sure that that drops and drops and drops until we get to zero preventable maternal deaths. So in order to strategize and partner with people, they have to be interested in what you're doing. You have to be able to convey that it's not just a bleak, never, never land. And you have to come with constructive solutions. In 2017, the Trump administration decided that it wasn't going to fund UNFPA. When did you find out you wouldn't be getting the $70 million or so you were expecting? You know, we really lament the posture of uh, the current U.S. administration, which has had a devastating effect on our ability to deliver, especially in humanitarian circumstances. The United States was a uh, founder of UNFPA 50 years ago. And of course, you know, one of the progenitors of the, the UN itself, we're celebrating 75 years of UN existence this year. While we understand that politics plays its role in society, it baffles me how the denial of funding for humanitarian circumstances um, can continue to impede our ability, for example, in a place like Zatari Camp, looking after Syrian refugee women across the border in Jordan, where they're really, really desperate. The uh, USA helped to fund one of the best maternity hospital situations and the prenatal and postnatal care that goes with it. So holding hands with moms who are delivering babies in that circumstance, we're so proud that we were able to build a situation with many partners so that after 11,000 births, we've never lost one mother. This is a huge undertaking given the, uh, the, the deprivations in that circumstance. So ultimately, um, I have pleaded, not for UNFPA, but on behalf of the women that we represent, that the overwhelming nature of that denial of support is having consequences with record numbers of displaced people due to conflict, due to the dramatic natural disasters. Right. But ultimately, we feel that the symbolism of the USA standing behind women the symbolism of the United States funding programs that actually do good around the world. Um, it's regrettable that this has been, you know, abrogated. Hopefully in the short term, we continue to bring evidence that shows that um, the work of UNFPA is life-saving, overwhelmingly life-saving. I continue to make the case that the USA is necessary. No other country can fill that hole. In Yemen, we had 268 hospitals and clinics that were helping people, and that shrunk down by 100 because of the loss of the funding and the effects of the, uh, the global gag rule. So it's, it's, it's been a tough moment. 
Later this year, it'll be the 25th anniversary of the Beijing World Conference on Women, which is seen as a real turning point for women's empowerment globally. Does it feel dispiriting to be dealing with some of the exact same issues now as you were then, or have, do you see just real progress at this point? Well, in my charitable moments, I think, you know, it's a spiral and we're on a higher rung <laughs> of the spiral. <laughs> and uh, one of the things that's really been invigorated is our understanding that, you know, every couple of seconds, every two seconds, a child is married around the world. So 33,000 girls under the age of 18 every day. And this has knock-on consequences. So this will be a moment for us to think about how do we protect the adolescent girl? UN Women has elaborated a strategy that uh, includes people in local communities having action plans together. And I think that these action coalitions are going to be really important to stop child marriage, to stop uh deaths in childbirth. I mean, 800 women a day around the world. This is something that we can join hands to do something about. I also like the idea of, you know, again, you know, the, 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 the cycle of this uh, women's meeting addressing head on the pay disparity, the economic disparity. And uh, more and more women parliamentarians are also encouraging other women to participate in the political processes. You know, it's a time when, okay, there's pushback, but pushing back against that pushback shows us our power. So ultimately, I think women have said women are not going back. And to move forward, we've got to be much more highly strategic. And it's an opportunity for us to do that in Mexico and then in in. That'll be in May and then in, in July in France. Looking forward, imagining 25 years from now, what are things you think we will have really changed since today on these issues? Is there something you hope that we'll be talking about 25 years from now that we aren't talking about now? Great question. We look at this through a 10-year lens because we don't want to wait 25 years to do something that really possibly should have been done yesterday. So when I think about the 10-year-old girl of today stepping out as a 20-year-old, as a 35-year-old, she is going to have full rights to be a card-carrying equal member of society. She's going to be safe in her home. She's going to be safe in her community, walking to school. She's going to have the opportunity to go to school. Education is fundamental for empowerment. And it is maddening that a girl can be kicked out of school for becoming pregnant when no one gave her the sexuality education that would have been preventive for her. So 10 to 20 years from now, I'm going to see that young women are being respected by the other people in society. I will see young men who will be standing up as defenders of a gender equality agenda. And uh, we will have an opportunity to once and for all deal with the notion that women can be coerced against their will into any type of harassment or sexual assault. This is something that society will be talking about and dealing with and dispensing with decisively. And the last thing that I'll say is for the vision of 
what will be going on in the future. In a world where technology is so important, embracing new technology for the positive good so that things like infertility, for example, we've made so much progress there, will be helped. Uh, there will also be the opportunity for women to delay or to structure their, their pregnant life the way that they want. But above and beyond that, I think the understanding that reproduction, human reproduction, is part of an age-old process, which has its own sacredness, and that women should be respected for this and entrusted with uh, decisions that they are perfectly capable of making that uh, will accrue not only to their benefit, but to those coming around them. It's not going to be that hard to talk about that 10, 20 years from now. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, too. Women Rule is produced by Zach Stanton. Irina Gucci is the executive producer of Politico Audio. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. Please share our episodes on social media and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at apalmerdc. You can also join the Women Rule community by texting WOMEN to 66866.